We, um, we saw last week uh, that the beginning of Matthew's gospel is essentially a messianic air siren. That as, that as Matthew begins his gospel narrative of Jesus, that he's signaling something massive has come. That with the arrival of Jesus, a new beginning has dawned. That, that Jesus is, this, is the dawning of a new creation, a new genesis. And, and he starts with a genealogy as a clear sign that the story that goes really back to the beginning, back to Genesis, and, and runs through the Old Testament from the patriarchs to the monarchy, even into exile, that, that that story now continues with the arrival of the long-anticipated Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew is, is telling us in no uncertain terms that the one who will bring a blessing to the nations and, and sit on the throne of David to establish God's rule, he's arrived. He's here. That was last week. And we had so much fun in the genealogy that I thought, hey, why not do it again? And so we're here one more week with the list of names. And this, this time I want to zero in specifically on some names that we find in verses 2 through 6 that Sierra just read for us. There are some names in the genealogy of Jesus that show up that honestly are a bit surprising. There are some unexpected names that appear in the genealogy. You ever shown up to a party and you get there and there's somebody there that you weren't anticipating being there? Maybe an ex-boyfriend or an ex-girlfriend or maybe a, a former boss. It makes things a little awkward. You're like, oh man, they're here? What are they doing here? Well, that's kind of the party that's going on in Matthew's genealogy. There, there are some people who show up that are unexpected and really for a lot of people probably undesired. And this is for a few reasons. For one, they're just unnecessary names. Matthew's genealogy is, is patrilineal, meaning that it, it's tracing the lineage through the males. Uh, Dale Bruner says that typically the only reason a woman's name might be added is if it will ensure the purity of the line or enhance its dignity. In other words, if you're doing a genealogy the way that Matthew is doing a genealogy, the only women that would show up would be exceptionally noteworthy women. Uh, maybe a queen, maybe, maybe a matriarch of the faith. Someone who, by inserting them in, maybe steers, steers the, the genealogy in a more preferable direction. That name gets you to a name that you really want to show up. But in this case, the women who show up here seem to do just the opposite. And this leads into the second reason why I think you wouldn't expect to find these women's names here in the genealogy because it would seem completely undesirable for them to be here. Pastor Tim Keller explains that in ancient and less individualistic times, one's genealogy was like a resume. I mean, think of, think of the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 as he begins to describe the things that he sort of hung his hat on before he came to faith in Jesus. He, he sort of recites his resume, circumcised on the eighth day, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. 
Paul is saying, I had a pedigree. I had a lineage. I had a good genealogy. It's what set him apart. Keller goes on and he says, like today's resumes, many things were usually expunged to make it look better to the reader. Women were seldom put in ancient genealogies at all, let alone women who reminded readers of the sordid sins and corruption of ancestors such as Judah and David. All of these figures would have been disowned or expunged from a normal genealogy, but here they are not. Perhaps you found yourself at some point in time working on your professional resume. And maybe, just maybe, as you've worked on that resume, you've thought to yourself, do I really have to add that job? Do I really have to list that season of ministry? Can I leave that part out? We might expect Matthew to feel that sort of attention as he lists the begats from Abraham to Jesus. And in fact, there actually are plenty of names left out. The lineage in verses 2 to 17 is not an exhaustive list. There are generations that are skipped over. That shouldn't scandalize us, by the way. Matthew's not redacting history. He's just not trying to provide an exhaustive one. It was very common to do this sort of thing. Otherwise, the genealogy would get really, really, really long. And so it's all the more surprising that, that Matthew has actually skipped over some generations, and yet he's included these four women that we find in these verses, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Uriah's wife, who we know to be Bathsheba. We, we, we meet Tamar in Genesis chapter 38. Her story is a tragic one. If you recall, she was the daughter-in-law of Judah, whose husband died because, as we're told by the narrator, he was an evil man. And in those days when a man died, it was his brother's responsibility to, to conceive a child with his widowed sister-in-law because this ensured that the perpetuation of his brother's family line continued. It was also the surest way that a widow like Tamar would be cared for in her old age. In, in ancient Israel, and really in the ancient Near East, children were security, and particularly male children. But Tamar's brother-in-law, Onan, actually refused to do this for Tamar. While he exploited her sexually, he, he prevented conception from happening. And, and this manipulation, this injustice against Tamar is actually seen by the Lord, and he ends up taking Onan's life. But as a result, there was this stigma that sort of hung over Tamar's name. Two husbands who had died? What is she, a, a black widow? Is she a cursed woman? Judah promises Tamar that when his youngest son is of age, that he'll fulfill the responsibility of being a redeemer. But it becomes clear in her story that he actually has no intention of doing this for her. He, he sends Tamar off to go live with her parents as a widow. And so Tamar is left really without any hope until she finally makes the super complex decision to play the harlot, to trick her father-in-law Judah into conceiving a child and to perpetuate the deceased husband's name and lineage on. Her story is not a story that really is one of Israel's shining moments. 
is a hard story. And here she is. Rahab, we meet in the book of Joshua. She is literally, by vocation, a harlot. Two spies sent by Joshua into the land of Canaan to scout out the land find their way to her house. What they're doing there, we're not told, but we're left to wonder. And soon gets word back to the king of Jericho that men from Israel are at Rahab the prostitute's house. And so he sends to find them, believing that they're spies. And as we know, Rahab hides the spies, helps them escape, asking that they remember her loyalty to them and to their God, the God of Israel. Again, not a name that you would want in a genealogy, especially a genealogy of the Messiah. Ruth's story is a little less scandalous than the first two, but not without anomalies. She's a Moabite woman who initially marries into Israel because Elimelech, her father-in-law, left Israel looking for food because there was a famine in the land. But they end up settling in Moab, and Elimelech's sons take wives from the Moabites, which was a clear violation of God's command. Bathsheba, the fourth woman mentioned, was exploited by King David, became pregnant by him, though married to Uriah the Hittite. And after news of her pregnancy reaches the king, David has her husband Uriah moved to the front lines of battle where he dies defending king and country, even while David sits back in the castle using his power to hide the reality that he took advantage of Uriah's wife. If you know their stories, then you know the mention of these women doesn't help the cause of establishing a pure and dignified lineage for the Messiah. And yet here they are. And and I don't think their inclusion is by accident. In fact, I think just the opposite. I think Matthew seems to have them here quite intentionally. And so the question we should be asking as we find these names is, what is Matthew up to? We observed last week, as Ann Clements explains, that the way a piece of narrative begins is important because it sets the the scene for what is to follow. It, It provides hints and clues about what the story will be about and how the reader should interpret it. And what I think is happening is that Matthew is giving us clues here right at the beginning in the genealogy about his gospel and the particular focus that he wants to draw on the life of Christ. In the forthcoming chapters, he's going to paint his narrative portrait of Jesus. And and what's clear is that Matthew wants us to not merely see that Jesus is Messiah. He wants to see the kind of Messiah he is. What kind of Messiah is Jesus? What kind of king will he be? If, if last week we saw who Jesus is, this week we'll see how he is. And the first thing that I want us to see here is that what the women in the genealogy are showing us is that Jesus is a welcoming king. Jesus is a welcoming king. The inclusion of these women is a signpost of the kingdom of heaven that all are welcome into the family of God in Jesus' name. One of the theological truths that we profess at City Life Church is is the doctrine of God's sovereignty. Sovereignty is his absolute lordship. It's, It's his authority. 
It's God's governance over everything. We, we believe that God not only plans the ends of things, but that he also plans the means. Meaning, we don't believe in a God who eventually gets things to where he wants them. God is not playing free safety, trying to keep the play in front of him, making best of what's happening. We believe in a God who's running the play just the way he wants it from start to finish. That he's the architect, he's, he's the playwright. We believe in a God who is meticulously sovereign. And so the end goal of the Son of God wrapping himself in human flesh and entering into the world as a child through the lineage of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba all the way to Joseph and Mary is just the way God wanted it. Every name was by design. So one of the things we should be asking ourselves is what kind of God is this that includes these names in the family tree of the chosen one? What kind of Messiah must he be to allow these names into his genealogy? It's interesting, if you go back and you read Moses' instructions to Israel, as they entered the promised land, they were commanded to utterly clear out the Canaanites. To not leave one person. When you read that on the surface, it would seem that there's no room for Gentiles in the Lord's plan. And yet one of the very first things that happens as they enter into the promised land is that they make an exception for Rahab. A Gentile, a Jerichoite. And on top of that, a harlot. Ann Clement says, in total contrast to what the reader might expect of a Canaanite prostitute, Rahab makes a confession of faith in Yahweh. She declares, the Lord your God is indeed God in heaven above and on earth below. Rahab's faith and actions demand a modification. In the story, Rahab ties this scarlet cord in her window so that when the Israelites come back to overtake the city, they would, they would see the scarlet cord and they would spare Rahab and her family. And that symbol for Rahab made her no longer a Jerichoite marked for destruction, but now an Israelite marked under mercy. As Old Testament scholars were reading the, the Masoretic copies of the Old Testament texts, they actually found notes in the margins of those, of those texts. And, and one of the notes that they read was that only Moses and Solomon make the same sort of confession that Rahab makes here. That Yahweh is God in heaven above and on earth below. This pagan woman found herself in the elite theological company of Moses and Solomon. And see, this is the deal, church. This is the deal. This, this is the good news. It didn't matter her parents. It didn't matter her past indiscretions. What mattered was her profession of faith. 
her belief in the stories that she'd heard about this God of Israel welcomed her into the family. Because of her faith, she found a home with the people of God. And we actually find something very similar in the story of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She had no place among the people of Israel, especially after her husband died. She was a Moabite widow. And Naomi tells her, hey, go back to your people and look for a husband among them. But Ruth said back to Naomi, don't plead with me to abandon you or return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. And your people will be my people and your God will be my God. And as the story goes, Ruth returns with Naomi to Bethlehem to live as a widow. And she finds favor in the eyes of a man named Boaz who eventually takes her as his wife. And together they conceive a son named Obed who fathers a child named Jesse who fathers a child named David. King of Israel, through whom comes the Christ. It was Ruth's faith. It was her, her declaration, your people will be my people and your God will be my God that brought her into the family and inserted her into the messianic line. See, by faith, anyone can belong to Messiah's family. In fact, one of the fascinating things about all four of the women in the genealogy listed here in two to six is that they're all Gentiles. All four of them, Tamar is a Canaanite, Rahab is a Jerichite, Ruth is a Moabite, Bathsheba is a Hittite. Not one of them is a natural inheritor of the promises of God. And yet here they are in the very lineage of the king, of Jesus, the son of God. Can you see what Matthew is trying to signal to us? He's demonstrating that anyone with the same faith as Rahab and Ruth can get woven into the family line just as they did. He's showing us that Jesus is a welcoming king. John 1, 12 and 13 tells us, but to all who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. In the economy of God's kingdom, what matters is not physical descent, but faith. Whoever believes in the name of Jesus belongs to the family. Isn't that good news? It's even better news because since it's by faith, this also means that it doesn't matter what your backstory is. It doesn't matter what your baggage is. The good news of Matthew's genealogy is that the way into Jesus' kingdom is not that, that if you clean yourself up real good, that you, then you can get in. That if you tamp down the worst parts of your past and hide all of your failures, that then you can maybe be a part of the family. That is not the news that Matthew is announcing. What he's announcing is that, that Jesus' family is for those who have stories. It's for those who have baggage attached to their name. It's for those who have been used and abused, treated with contempt, and side-eyed with skepticism. 
In the stories of Tamar and Bathsheba, both of these women are, are sexually exploited. They were victims left to deal with the baggage of men who mistreated them. In the world's economy, these ladies were damaged goods. But see, Matthew gives them a place of prominence because in Jesus' kingdom, the humble are exalted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. They're the one that get Messiah's comfort. Blessed are the meek. They're the ones that inherit the land. In the first century, women were, were by and large, second-class citizens. They, they didn't possess the same rights as men. They were often, there was often a double standard when it came to how they were viewed and how they were treated. But what Matthew is showing us here is that from the very start, he's signaling a change with the ministry of Jesus. He's saying, Jesus is not like other rabbis. Jesus is not like other leaders. With Jesus, it's different. Jesus is the kind of Messiah that elevates the powerless. He's a, he's a Messiah for the marginalized. With the names in the genealogy, Matthew is saying to the reader, if you feel overlooked, if you feel misunderstood, if you feel forgotten, Jesus is just the kind of king for you. And he invites you into his family. He, he's saying, believe in him as God's son, savior of the world. And you can be a part of the family. And this leads into the second observation which is that Jesus is not only a welcoming king, but also a redeeming king. Jesus is a redeeming king. Any Jewish person reading Matthew's gospel immediately goes back to the stories of these women. It's almost like Matthew says them to, to sort of stir up, stir it up and, and stir up their memories so that they remember these stories. He's kind of shining a light on the ugliest parts of Israel's history. Now, why is he doing that? I think he's doing it because by churning up all these stories with all their baggage, Matthew is, is setting Jesus forward as a foil to the men in these stories, showing us that, that he is the way that these stories find their redemption and their healing. In the story of Tamar, Onan and Judah were, were unjust and exploitative. They, at the end of Genesis 20, 38, Judah looks at Tamar and he says to her, you are more in the right than I am. Tamar, you have acted more justly than I have acted. See, Ju Judah on the surface was maintaining an appearance of righteousness. But he failed to truly live that out with his daughter-in-law. And so he makes the promise that when his son's of age, that he'll let his son be the redeemer. But he doesn't fulfill the promise. He sort of lives the righteous life in, in the eyes of his friends, but when he's out of town, he's doing indiscretionary acts. And then when he later learns that Tamar is pregnant, he's ready to kill her. He's a hypocrite, ready to judge Tamar for the very sins that he himself has committed. Judah had this image that was inconsistent with his actual character. And what Tamar longed for, what Tamar needed, was a truly righteous man. 
Clement says, by her inclusion in the genealogy, Matthew invites the reader to see the themes in Tamar's story as anticipating the ministry of the Messiah, who is presented in Matthew as the one who embodies a new righteousness. Jesus will radically redefine what it is to lead a righteous life. As the righteous Messiah, he will bring justice to all those on the margins of society who are mistreated and disenfranchised. In other words, what Matthew's doing is he's highlighting this story to say this story's ending finds its fulfillment in Jesus because Jesus is not like Judah. He really is righteous. From the inside out, he's righteous. And all the way through, he's righteous. That the way that Tamar's story finds its end is in Christ, the truly loving kinsman redeemer, the truly righteous one who fulfills all righteousness for us and comes to give us the Holy Spirit so that we can actually begin to walk in newness of life. We can actually begin to live righteous lives. I think he's doing the same sort of thing with Bathsheba. You know, the second section of the genealogy would be really smooth if it weren't for that insertion, the wife of Uriah. David was father of Solomon. He could have just kept on going. David was the father of Solomon by Uriah's wife. And it seems like he's doing it on purpose because he could have said by Bathsheba, but he's highlighting the incident. It draws attention to David's sinful treatment of both Bathsheba and Uriah, his abuse of power as king. And the way that Matthew's telling the history of Israel, this is really the catalyzing event that leads to the downfall into exile. It starts here. It starts with David's failure. He starts with David and he goes to exile. But see, what Matthew's doing is he's saying, he's saying to us, He's saying to us that that the end of the genealogy is not exile, it's Emmanuel. That in the end, mercy triumphs over judgment. That the greater King David is the punctuating name in the list. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called Messiah. That's the end of the story. God's mercy and forgiveness is demonstrated through Bathsheba, the abused and marginalized woman who becomes the bearer of Solomon, the one who fulfills God's promise and perpetuates David's line. But her presence alerts the reader to the divine punishment of sin worked out over many generations. But more importantly, her inclusion points to God's gracious forgiveness that will ultimately be expressed in the saving ministry of the Messiah. What Matthew is showing us is that Jesus is the greater Judah, who acts justly and fulfills all righteousness, that Jesus is the greater David, who doesn't exploit his power, but lays it down to serve us. At the end of the line, there's Jesus, the redeemer. He's the patriarch that we can trust. He's the king worthy of our allegiance. He's the answer to our broken stories. And so listen to me. Whatever injustice is in your past, whatever failure, whatever pain, whatever disappointment, what Matthew wants you to know is that Jesus is a redeeming king. 
His gospel story begins with a list of sordid names, stories of a sinful people. But his gospel story ends with a crucified and risen Savior who rules over Satan's sin and death. And so the final word in Tamar's and Ruth's and Rahab's and Bathsheba's story is, is redemption. That's the final word in their story. It's, it, it, it's, it's, it's redemption. And this is true for all who find their ending in Jesus. If, if Jesus is the last name in your story, then everything's going to be okay. All will be well. All manner of things will be well. The good news of the gospel is that at the end of the story, there is Jesus the Christ who saves his people from their sins. He's a redeeming king. Have you put your trust in this king? He welcomes all who receive him by faith, who call on his name. As we close, just a couple of considerations for us. What does this mean for us as disciples of Jesus? As followers of a welcoming king, we are a welcoming people. Jesus made room in his family tree for all kinds of sordid stories. He made room for us. And so in light of that, we make room in our living rooms, around our dinner tables, in our city groups, in our church, in our lives, for people who others might not make room for. Is there margin in your life for marginalized people? That was you. And Jesus welcomed you in. When we think about the life of Tamar, her, her story is really one of marrying the wrong person, then getting used by, by another dude, then getting forsaken and left as damaged goods, trying to figure things out on her own. I just wonder how many Tamars there are in our city. What tends to be assumed in cases like Tamar's is that this is somehow her fault. That she's the guilty party. That something's wrong with her. But when you look closer, you see a different story. But listen, church, to look closer, you have to draw near. You have to know her name. You have to get close to her story. You've got to welcome her to the table of your life. When we look at the life and the ministry of Jesus and the stories that follow in this gospel, what we find is that Jesus regularly made time for people on the margins, that he sat at table with them, that he shared meals with them, that he knew their names and he loved them. And as his followers, we have to ask the question, what does this mean for us? What does it teach us about how we should spend our time and how we should view and treat the Tamars in our life? Because Jesus is a welcoming king, we are a hospitable people, a people who believe that no one is disqualified or no one is out of reach of grace 
Because after all, he welcomed us. He saved us. And secondly, as followers of a redeeming king, we're called to be agents of his redemption. Jesus entered into the brokenness of our human story to heal us and to restore us. He became one of us. He took on our frailty that he might heal us of all of our wounds. Jesus got near enough to the brokenness in order to heal it. And now he sends us out in his name as ambassadors of his redeeming work. Jesus drew near and so he sends us to draw near. This is called incarnational ministry in the flesh. Where might God be sending you this Christmas? To bring the hope of Christmas. In Jesus' name, anyone can join the family. In Jesus' name, broken stories are redeemed. Let's pray together.